HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's show is sponsored by Bob's Red Mill. With natural foods, they support organic, vegan, paleo, and gluten-free lifestyles. Learn more about their commitment to good food for all at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. This episode is brought to you by Juul, the immersion circulator for sous vide by Chef Steps. Order now at chefsteps.com slash J-O-U-L-E. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome to Cooking Issues. This is Dave Arnold, your host of Cooking Issues, coming to you live on the Heritage Radio Network every Tuesday from like, I don't know, what is it, like 12.15 to like 12.45, 1 o'clock, uh, you know, from Roberta's Pizzeria in Bushwick, Brooklyn. <laughs> Joined as usual with Nastasia of the Hammer Lopez. How you doing, Nastasia? Yeah? Mm-hmm. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Got Dave in the booth. How you doing? Also good. Yeah? Yeah. How do you pronounce your last name? Tatashore. Tatashore. So it's like not like the full Italian pronunciation. Give me the Italian. Not, not in this country, I guess. Give me the Italian. Tatascore. <laughs> Tatascore. Hey. Like hey. But you pronounce it Tatashore? Yeah. Like Dinosaur, but with Tata? You know, funny story. I one time met Ben Stein, the comedian, and he asked my name and I told him and he was like, oh, like Dinosaur. For real? Yeah. So that's one thing I share with Ben Stein. Yes. Nice. All right. Why did you meet Ben Stein? I don't know. He was like wandering around the campus of my school. That seems like something he, was he there would for, do. He must What's have been there cool? for a show or something. This was at um, uh, this was at a, uh, a school which shall remain unnamed in central Pennsylvania many many years ago. Huh? Did he was he doing his uh, his Bueller bit or was he doing his uh, like uh, his his no, game, game was, show bit or what? No, I think actually I don't know. I don't think it was a comedy show. I think he was just there to speak about life or nixon or whatever he has to say yeah he's quite a conservative dude yeah he's like super conservative yes shockingly like super conservative but like regardless of anyone's political beliefs everyone loves bueller bueller dave what school did you go to it was penn state (laughs) nice penn state's great why do you not i don't know but dave what school did you go to what me? Yeah. Oh, Nastasia like Nastasia went no, to Stanford. My, yeah, yeah. But this is my. Well, this is what I hate when people ask me what school I went to. What school did you go to? Oh, uh, it's in uh, Northern California. Like how northern? We talking like Eureka? We talking near San Francisco? Uh huh. So you went to like you know what? You're like Stanford. No, no. Then you're like, what's in Palo Alto? <laughs> you keep going. Yeah. East Palo Alto, though. You're like went to like a like a CC in East Palo right. Alto. That's what. Yeah. That's what you've done, like oh, Connecticut. It's not true. They're like, where did you live? And you're like Connecticut. Because I actually lived in Connecticut. No, no, no. I'm saying we both agree with this. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You say where you went. Yeah. Here's the issue. <laughs> I'm 45 years old, almost 46 years old. I mean, where I went to school, pretty immaterial, other than the fact <laughs> that right, I, I met I my wife there. Yeah. But Penn State, which is where my grandpa who just died came from, Nittany Lion, you know, whatever. Like, they have great ice cream, apparently. They have, like, like the ice cream program. Like, if you want to learn how to make ice cream on a commercial level, like, you go to Penn State. You ever have their ice cream when they were out there? Yeah, of course. Did you enjoy their ice cream? Yeah, of course. All right. They have great ice cream and... Uh, pathological state of denial going on up yeah. there about other things yes <laughs> look 
That. <laughs> All right, I got you. All right. Uh, there's so, been a caller who's been waiting, right? All right. Well, I'll take that there's caller. A, and caller. if there are more callers, call in your questions to seven one eight four nine seven two one two eight. That's seven one eight four nine seven two one two eight. And caller, you're on the air. Hello. Hey, uh, this is Darren, uh, a young fan from the Kingdom of Melon. Hey, nice. Uh, can you hear me okay? Yeah. Uh, until now, the quality's been kind of bad on my side. Let me ask you a question. In the Netherlands, are they super worried about uh, about uh, sea levels rising? Oh, man. I, I'm so sorry. I really can't hear you on oh, my end. Man. Maybe I should try and call you back. All right, yeah. Call back so you can hear what wait, I hear. Wait, wait, wait. Try, can... try now. Try try, now. Can call. you hear me now? Can you hear me now? I feel like the guy who switched from Verizon to uh, Sprint. Can you hear me now, oh. caller? Give a call back. Call. Give a call back, and we'll and we'll try it again. Uh, in the meantime, I think you have another caller. I have another caller. Yeah, there's another caller. All now. right, caller, you're on the air. Hello. What's going on with these people? We're having some bad luck with the calls today. Listen, you tell hey, me. Uh, are you there? Hey, how you doing, caller? Oh, hi. Yes, I, I can kind of hear you. All right. Um, uh, how's it going? I had a question about um, pressure cooking stocks in aluminum pots. Sure. Um, we're op- I'm opening a, a restaurant that's going to be doing a lot of soup, and we're hoping to do pressure cooked chicken stock. And the biggest one I can find that's not like insanely expensive is like a 41 quart all American pressure cooker. That's but they're only made in aluminum, and I was wondering if there's any concerns with that because I noticed on. In uh, one of your posts from a while ago in the blog, you guys used like a steel stainless steel insert when you guys were using. Um, yeah, yeah, a lot depends on what you're going to do. Like, okay, so there's there are people who are worried about aluminum in any event. I'm not one of those people, but like right. you do need to be worried about aluminum in excessively uh, basic conditions. Or anytime you're setting up sort of like kind of a galvanic cell between um, metals or like if you have heavy detergents going into it or if you have uh, – I guess also I – mean, I wonder what – I guess extreme acids too, whatever. But anyway, so aluminum though in chicken stock, I don't think is going to be that big of a problem. You know, I'm sure you've used over the course of your life uh, various qualities of aluminum pots and what you, know, what you notice yeah. is that they get um, – they get pitted out, especially like the lower quality ones get pitted out a lot. And that metal's going somewhere. Guess where? Uh, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like some of it's yeah. getting scrubbed out, but, you know, uh, some of that stuff's getting leached out. Most of it happens when you can form like a galvanic connection, like an electrical connection between dissimilar metals and a liquid medium, i.e. your food. Now, mm-hmm. in chicken stock, which you know isn't especially acidic or basic, I doubt that you're going to have that many uh, problems. And I myself am not worried about. Um, I'm not worried about it. In very very long cooking items, I've had some things discolor when they're cooking in the presence of aluminum foil in sous vide. Right. But we're talking like you know mm-hmm. days. Um, you know, or at least many, many hours. So, like a short run in a, in a pressure cooker, I don't think is going to cause um, that much of a problem. Now, you could get people on. See, back in the day, people used to worry about aluminum pots because um, there was increased uh, aluminum content in the brains of autopsied uh, Alzheimer's patients. And so then the question was, did aluminum cause Alzheimer's or not, right? And this is a big problem because aluminum's in like a lot, like a lot of the baking um, uh, powders that we use. Uh, I think it's also one of the main ingredients in um, you know an aluminum compound. I think in um, underarm deodorant. And so we come into aluminum in kind of non-natural formats, okay, pretty often. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. And so. They did a lot of research, and I think it was determined that you know that it is true that Alzheimer's patients uh, put more aluminum into their brains, but it's not that they that you and I necessarily are getting aluminum into through the food we ingest and depositing it in our brains, and that's causing Alzheimer's. In other words, I think the current research shows that it's a um, it's a result rather than a cause, if that makes sense. So yeah. you know what you what you need to worry about more is like is it affecting the flavor? I think of yeah, uh, other stock. Yeah. And you know what? Honestly, I've never noticed it. I've never done a side by side in the American pressure canner versus like. Um, 
because the the other problem with the American pressure you know pressure canner is that it is a big ship to steer. So you have it takes a while to get her up to to pressure, and then it takes a while to stabilize it out. You know what I mean? And you right. have all those fidgety, fussy knobs on the top of it that you you know tighten it down like a submarine bulkhead. Uh, actually, I wish it was like a submarine bulkhead. Those have just that one big knob. These have like all those little like you know those little black uh, knobs. So it can be yep. kind of fidgety uh, to get it going, but it does make a whole boatload of um, stuff once you're done. The other thing you have to be careful with on those units is they take a long time to cool down too. Long time to cool down. So like right. it's it's not necessarily for anything that you need to do like a natural temperature drop on just because you're going to be there forever. You know what I mean? Whereas yeah. you know for stock, I don't really. Uh, yes, this is true. You might get more. Uh, it, you're probably going to get a cloudier stock if you force cool it rather than let it like come down naturally. But you might be able to cut your yep. recipes a little bit shorter, and then to account for the fact that it's going to take a long time for the thing to kind of drift back down. But right. back to what I was saying, I've never noticed uh, an aluminum flavor on something that is cooked <clears throat> solely in an aluminum pot that is not acidic, is not basic, and also doesn't have any other metal implements in it. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, yeah. you know, I've noticed uh, in kind of mixed metal situations, you know, where I know the aluminum is leaching. I don't know whether it's my mind telling me there's a taste or not. Could be. You know, it's hard to say. Um, but that's just my, you know, my, my general impression because, you know, in general, you know, I everybody knows that a lot of their stuff in a restaurant you know, maybe not a high-end restaurant, but in like, you know, medium restaurants, it's cooked in aluminum because large aluminum pots are so much cheaper than large stainless steel pots, so much cheaper for a given level of, you know, quality. And so, you know, unless, you know, when was the last time you were at a restaurant where someone like had the soup and was like, oh my God, they cooked this in aluminum. You know what I mean? Like it now that, that said, I think it would make sense to do like some side by sides just kind of for fun to see whether you could blind, you know, triangle test to see whether you could taste the difference. But I kind of doubt it outside of the, you know, the, the, the very basic things that, um, that I mentioned here, I'm kind of, you know, it's interesting. They, the people who make that pressure cooker, they make it for two reasons. They don't really call it a cooker. They call it either a canner or a sterilizer, depending on what lid you're using. And for those of you that look it up on the, online it is by far the biggest pressure cooker you can get um right. you know th- they don't call it a cooker because i guess presumably like they're like who cooks that much but the um because they're not aimed at pros necessarily um and almost i've never seen you know a modern um non-stainless uh you know sandwich uh pressure cooker so it'd be hard to do a, a side-by-side which is i guess one of the reasons i've never I've never really done it, but you could do a standard soup side by side, I guess, um, aluminum yeah. versus stainless, and see what's going on. But that's probably also yeah. because they don't—they're not expecting you to cook in it. It's just what I, you know, cook in quotes, like cook a stock. It's probably why they don't have a version of it with like an interior hard anodized shell. You know what I mean? Right. Because uh, right. that would make it a lot easier. Now, if you want to go super yeah. fancy, you could take it to your local, uh, you know, local anodizer, and and they could make it like whatever awesome color you want, along with the hard anodized coating. You could have like the sweetest pink pressure canner in the whole world. You know what I mean? <laughs> um, but um, I, I don't know whether for it, but I didn't I haven't looked into the anodized. Yeah, you know, it's not that expensive to get something anodized. But what I don't know yeah. is whether or not the food anodizing people do have like a special bag or whether there's any sort of uh, food gradeness to like what an anodizer right. does because I've never looked at it. But I have looked at getting parts anodized before because, you know, like a lot of aluminum par carts, people want them all different colors because they want like, you know, they want this piece to be red and this piece to be green because, you know, they're spending a lot, a lot of money on their car. So like everything has to be just so. And when you have an aluminum part, anodizing is the way to go. Or if right. you look at like mag lights, you know, back when people were buying a bunch of mag lights uh, before they got swamped by all the LED people, like think of all the anodized cool colors mag lights came in you know what i mean or still come in i guess right right so it is possible but i don't know the cost great and then and then you guys you you recommend the uh the canner right because the top of that has doesn't have the jiggler valve it just has like the the regular sort of 
um, non-steam releasing valves. Okay, so the way that the can there's there's two the canner and the sterilizer. The sterilizer is kind of a pain in the butt because it's got a long kind of tube that comes out of it, and um, yeah. that tube is to guarantee that you vent off all of the air that's inside of your pressure cooker. One of the things about a pressure cooker that is not talked about that often, except for I guess by pressure cooker cognoscenti, is that you want to actually allow steam to escape for uh, like you know you know a minute or two um, at the beginning of the cook and the reason is you want to purge all the dry air out of it and have it all be steam now it seems like you know it seems like that, that doesn't make sense and at first blush when I thought about it it seems like it wouldn't make a difference but from what everybody says it actually makes a difference and the pressure canner people the pressure sterilizer people who are using you know sterilizing implements to use for surgery especially care about this yeah. sort of thing uh, and so you know in general now and if you look at like a Kuhn Recon, for instance, like you know how yeah, – like when I have it at home. Yeah, right. So when it comes up to temperature, like the side valve hisses for a while before it shuts off. And that's – right. you know what I'm saying? That's a little side valve. And that's inherent yeah. in the design such that you get the dry air out of the pressure cooker and all that's left in there is steam. Uh, and so uh-huh. that, that's why it does that. So you know, if, you, if you wonder, you're like, why the hell did they design it this way? Why didn't they just seal it? And that, that's the reason. Um, so with these guys, they have what's called a, a, a very nice geared um, uh, pressure sensor on the top of the pressure cooker, right? One that's far more accurate than the crappy ones that you get in, you know, in a standard home uh, pressure cooker. But then they also have a weight on them, and the weight looks a little bit like a round tinker toy with different size holes drilled in it, and. Depending on which hole you put on top of the vent valve of the uh, pressure canner, it puts uh, it's a, a different um, uh, radius and therefore a different amount of uh, pressure that's going to be pushing up on it, and therefore you can adjust the the over the, the, like when the steam starts like, venting on it based on the weight uh, the the weight and the circle diameter of that little tinker toy. Uh, so what you do is you leave the tinker toy off for a little while, let a lot of steam come up, and then once the steam comes up. You put the tinker toy on, and then you adjust the pressure such that the tinker toy is not venting anymore, and you're just using the pressure gauge to determine the pressure of the um, of the stock. See what I mean? So that's okay. how that's how yeah. you do it. But it's still considered advisable to. Um, to let that thing vent. And I did a bunch of tests where like, you know, I artificially increased the weight of the tinker toy, uh, such that you, you have to keep the weight centered or it's kind of a mess. Uh, but I artificially increased the weight of the tinker toy. One thing you have to be careful of in a professional kitchen is some knucklehead is going to lose that weight. They're going to lose it. Then you are hosed. So uh, back when it was living at the French Culinary Institute, I literally tied – I tied it to the handle of the – which is not smart in a pro kitchen because the health inspector is going to be like – What's this piece of string tied to you? It's not NSF anymore. You know what I mean? But like, but like, yeah. just to make sure that I wasn't going to lose that little thing because the whole piece of equipment is functionally useless after you lose that. You know what I mean? It's uh, right. just one of those things. Can you just say Tinker Toy one more time? Tinker Toy. You, you, did you not have Tinker Toy? When I was a kid, one of my best toys I had, unfortunately, was made of plastic because you know this was the like the mid seventies. But they used to make giant Tinker Toys out of plastic that you could literally make things you could. See sit in right so i i was fortunate enough to have a set of these giant tinker toys and i can still like you know if you were to scale them up to my you know you know adult size like the long tinker toy pipe would be like four and a half five feet long like big you know what i mean i mean when i was i'm sure it was only two and a half feet long because i was you know like shorter but in any way so hopefully this has this, hopefully this has been helpful. What I would like you to do, if you do some experiments, I would like you to either call back or tweet over on at Cooking Issues and let me know how it works out so that I can uh, help uh, you know further crews in their in pressure cooking endeavors. Great, awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you. Hey, you Dave, want to take another call? Yeah, did we get that other uh, fellow back? Yeah, other fellow. You still yeah, there? Hey, how you doing? Can you hear us now? Yeah, I can hear you pretty okay. Uh, nice. The connection before was better, so I was listening in, but uh, looks like it's forgiven. So, uh, hi, Nastasia. Hi, Dave. Um, I'm a young fan, Colin, from the Netherlands. Um, I relatively recently discovered the show um, and your immense kick-butt uh, backlog of shows, uh, which I listened to on my commute to my engineering internship. Oh, nice. uh, so thanks a lot for that. 
Thank you. Um, I recently made a Chef's Steps chicken pot pie. Um, yeah, by the way, uh, I'm a college student, so I've got, like, low-budget but hopefully not low-quality questions for you. All right, nice. I like low-budget. Uh, Nastasia likes low-quality. Yeah. I like low-budget. Uh, <laughs> all right, great. So um, I really enjoyed uh, chicken pot pie. Uh, I cooked with my girlfriend this weekend, and uh, I have loads of time in the weekend to go create days, but I don't even have access to a kitchen generally during the week. Um, so I'm currently thinking a lot about uh, preparing food in advance and preparing good food in advance. Um, so what can you recommend? And when you're considering something like a chicken pot pie, uh, is that best to store in a semi or post-cooked piece or in its constituent sort of pieces like uh, dough balls and, and the filling? That's a good question. So I've never st- stored a, I mean, I've had chicken pot pie. First of all, let's just all be clear. Nastasia, you like chicken pot pie, right? Love. Love. Dave, you like chicken pot pie? Best. Yeah. Chicken pot pie is good. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, let's put this all on the table. I like an actual chicken pot pie, i.e. one that has a bottom crust and a top crust, one that was at that's one right, time. That's what I made. Right. Yep. Right. Sorry, sorry. Now, in a modern person, right? If, okay, so like, are you, but you're, you're American, right? So you've been, you've hung out. Have you been yeah. to school in America? No, no, I grew up completely in Europe. Oh my God, you're one of those spy-like people who sounds like an American, but isn't from here. You're crazy. Are you, are you a spy? <laughs> yeah, half American, half Dutch, but uh, I grew up in Switzerland. All right, all right, all right, all right. Nastasia therefore likes you because of the whole Swiss thing. But listen, so like in America, a crappy pot pie, even though I feel that we are like, you know, one of the, you know, bastions of pot pie-ness in the world, like there's this terrible idea where they take a hotel pan and they put the pot pie mix into the hotel pan and just put the crust on top. So just be sure we're not talking about that kind of second tier of pot pie. Okay, so the issue with the pot pie and storage once it's baked is just making sure that the crust on the bottom doesn't get kind of overly soggy. So, um, you know, but I I wish I'd run some more tests. I don't buy frozen, like, pot pies. I admit when I was a kid, I I had plenty of, you know, was it Swanson or Stouffer who made the pot pie? Swanson who made the pot pie? I had plenty of those growing up, but um, yeah. So what's the best way? It's probably similar. I'm trying to think of what what a pie. I'm trying to figure out whether you should just make the crust and freeze it and then blind bake or whether or not, I, I don't know how thick you could get and actually literally cook the pot pie from frozen, entirely from frozen. You know what I mean? I'm trying to, it might actually yeah, not exactly. be so bad. You know what I mean? Like, so if you're looking at a, uh, I'd have to, I'd have to get uh, our friend Nick Devlin to run some um, console uh, uh, stuff. But I don't know how long it would take the standard pot pie, because the the goop is, like, I'm a believer in pre pre cooking the goop out. Basically, the chicken's already cooked, everything's cooked, right? So then, basically, you just yep. need to thaw yep. the goop and then cook the shell. You might be able to freeze. Uh, you might be able to freeze an entirely raw pot pie and just do it. I don't know though. Anyone on the uh, anyone on the boards, uh, Dave, who uh, has uh, cooked a uh, frozen a pot pie and then cooked it? Uh, I'll let you know. Chat room. Yeah, see what chime the chat in. room has to say. Chime in on this. But I would see. I would think it's possible. Well, if I ever try, I'll, I'll let you know how it goes. Um, and and like when when you like consider um, like. I know whenever you're traveling or whatever and you want to prepare meals in advance and if you just know you have uh, not that much time during the week, like, I mean, it sounds like an excuse, but I really honestly don't have uh, access to a kitchen. What sort of uh, recipes can you recommend uh, to prepare, like, uh, on a whole weekend? Because I'm happy to cook the whole weekend. What do you have? What do you have for reheating capabilities? Uh, I often have uh, access to a microwave. Um, Sometimes a stove, but that's about it. So I'm like in a pretty dire situation. Right. I mean, I mean, the obvious ones are things like, I mean, soups. Like you want something that doesn't degrade, right? But you're looking for an idea that isn't just like the standard non non degrading. Like anything that is a stew, or or you know something like this is kind of a like easy an easy call. The problem with those right, things is reheating. So, like, if you're at, if you're, let's say you're in a dorm room or whatever, some sort of like you know non-ideal circumstance, and you have a, a quart container of um, of soup, that sucks. Thawing those out sucks. Um, you know, the real 
but the problem is, is if you take, let's say, something like soup and you would, you know, freeze it in a Ziploc format, which is what I tend to do, or chill it in Ziploc format, flat. So, like, the easiest way to reheat something that is not, you know, a large object like uh, a roast is to spread it into a Ziploc as thin as possible and then freeze them in flat sheets uh, on sheet trays. Then they become basically thin bricks that thaw out extremely quickly. And also, uh, yeah, they heat up very quickly. But the issue is, is you want to be careful when you microwave it because if you have uh, oil in your thing, it can locally overheat and melt out the Ziploc because Ziploc bags, their their melting temperature is extremely – where they lose their structural integrity. It's not a safety issue, but it's extremely close to um, – the boiling point of water. So it's very easy in a microwave to locally overheat a Ziploc bag and have it lose its integrity. And that kind of sucks. Uh, but you can do things like, um, you can do things like, uh, and I've done this recently where you take the frozen Ziploc and you score it and then you break the thing into sheets and then put that into the microwave in sheet format and they just melt down into your bowl. Easy as pie. Or if you happen to get a hold of a, of a, you know, a, a, you know, a cheap circulator or even sometimes just uh, hot water in, you know, in, out of a tap, you can thaw those bags very, very quickly right. and then put them into something to reheat them like a microwave. But it really, really sucks to reheat um, quart containers of soup in a microwave. I don't know if you've ever tried okay. or stews. Yeah. No, it's, I've never tried that. It's horrible. Nastasia, you've tried that, right? And it's horrible. You get that giant chunk and then it starts spinning and then you shove the spoon into the quart container to try to get it to – and then it spins around and it spurts up into your freaking eye and you think you're like, oh, it's only going to be five minutes until I got dinner on the table and then like 20 minutes later, they're like, it's a microwave. I thought it was quick. What's your problem? You know what I mean? I hate that. Hate. Yeah, exactly. But another good thing is you can do sauces. So you could do you could pre do certain pasta sauces and whatnot can also be bagged out in the same way. So that if you have uh, access to let's say um, uh, just like a simple hot plate, you could boil out your pasta and then you could have your sauce pre bagged, you know, pre portioned, pre bagged, and you could be thawing that in hot water as you go. And the noodles themselves will do a major bit of reheating on that sauce as long as it isn't dead cold. And as long as it's not like a like it depends also like if you're doing a sauce that has a huge volume right then you're going to really cool down the pasta quite a bit but as long as you're doing a sauce where it's a relatively small volume if it, even if it's just warm the pasta will still be good i know nastasia enjoys cooking some pasta i do yes especially well, now that she's awesome a part tip. of pasta Thanks. Um, yeah. i'll definitely uh, think of this and also if i'm like making chicken pot pie next time or something and i'm like i can just scale my recipe put it in like a flat zip block and then I can have easy access to it, like even if I do have access to the kitchen, and just speed up that whole cooking process. That's a great, that's a great tip. Yeah, uh, sure. Thanks a lot. All right. Well, let us know. Uh, let um, us know how everything works. You got anything else? Absolutely. Uh, I've got, I've got a couple. Like one, one more question. Do I have time for that? Yeah, sure. That's Go ahead. Greedy. All right, great. Um, I'm fascinated by your spins all, and uh, I love the low temperature tips that you've got and everything. I'm a total tech enthusiast. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm an engineering student. I mean, what are you going to do? Um, so I'd love to have, like, a gadget-filled kitchen. So what unconventional, like, budget-friendly tools can you recommend uh, to people like me and, and to tinkers? I'm also not afraid of uh, getting some basic electronics, and uh, if, if my degree's worth anything, then I should be able to build something of relatively good quality. Right. So are you, are you, what are you, double E, Mechie? What are you? Uh, aerospace engineering. Oh, okay. So, all right, fine. All right. So, uh, yeah, so you should be able to do some stuff. Is that still like a, a real baller area of engineering or no? It's like um, basically um, mechanical engineering with some extra thermodynamics and fluid dynamics is probably, I mean, it, it, it's uh, maybe some people will get angry by that, but. Uh, uh, that's probably how I'd describe it. Yeah, it's a cool it's a cool engineering field, I think. Anyway, um, I mean, so just you know, having used most of the stuff that people use, obviously, you know, the first thing you're going to need is you're going to need uh, an immersion circulator. Um, eventually, you know, you might want to tweak out your own version of uh, steam injection or like massive control of an oven. Like I'm a huge believer in massive oven control. Uh, and you can oh, do yeah, that. That's great because I've got like this awful compact oven and I'd love to develop like a front end where I can like put a profile into it. That would be super sick. Oh, and you totally, you to- yeah, you to- and you totally can. You know what I mean? So like if, if it's especially easy if it's electric. 
Uh, it's not it's not that hard, even if it's gas. You just have to be a little more careful with the kind of with the safety stuff. Um, but I've tricked out electrics. I've tricked out gas ovens. And, yeah, you can do lots of cool stuff. Like you can do um, – you can do you know, your own steam injection into it. You can do – uh, your own versions of uh, forced convection on the inside. You can do uh, independently heated uh, bottoms and tops. You can, there's you know with, with uh, awesome. yeah there's all kinds of cool stuff you can do messing with your oven. As long as if you own it, it's no problem. If you don't own it, you just have to make it be able to look okay. I also always um, <laughs> a- after making this mistake several times. Uh, I always put a uh, like a human switch in where you're just like, okay, a normal human now can come in and use my oven. And then I would put it into my mode where, you know, everyone's like, why can't I just before? Why can't I just use your oven, Dave? Why does everything have to be so complicated? You know what I mean? It's like all that kind of complaining. So it (laughs) makes your life a lot easier. Just have that switch on it. Like, you know, normal mode. I, I love it. Yeah. That's great. That, that, I'm, I'm going to like, uh, who knows when I have time, but when I do, I'll, I'll let you know how it goes. Uh, and last but not least, uh, you might know of Dutch and Aver. Um, you, I don't really actually find it all that pleasant myself, um, but are there any cool like food combinations that come to your mind with regard to cooking or, or mixing with it? Huh. Uh, because I'd love to find an awesome use for it and enjoy it with, because it's so quintessentially Dutch. I got a lot of Dutch friends, uh, friends and family, and I think they'd be really impressed if I could like, turn, you know, something up. I've never cooked with it. Uh, Tristan, I mean, like over here, we now, Philip Duff, who's, uh, you know, a uh, a liquor, international liquor person, but he spends a lot of his time here in the U.S. He has a Jennifer company, and so he's going to be mad that I don't have this stuff just tripping off the tongue, but I've never cooked with it. Uh, We used to use it, you know, a bit at the bar, and I don't have the spec in my head because it wasn't my spec, but Tristan Willie, our original manager at Booker and Dax, uh, he had a drink called Bulls Deep. I'm sure the recipes online that is like uh oh, cool. it's like an old-fashioned but it's one of these inverted ango drinks so it's got a boatload of angostura in it um we also used to do uh bulls uh jennifer and apricot and that's a really good mix so you might want to think of uh apricot and jennifer because they go together quite well uh but i don't have and i've used i've mixed with it on a number of occasions i just don't have any specs in my in my head you know what i mean it's the kind of thing where you're working oh, yeah. on a project and you're like oh you know what jennifer would be good for that but you know any like once you start like appreciating how long have you been you've been there your whole life you said you've been there no you switzerland you grew up all right but you're half dutch are yeah. you are you a fan of salty licorice or no uh yeah yeah, yeah i am i i'm pretty partial to it so, so you like most dutch things just not jennifer uh, well, uh, Dutch culinary, uh, I, I might get some hate for this, but, uh, <laughs> it, it's a little on the basic side sometimes, but no, I, I like some of these kind of Dutch delicacies and sweets and things that are typically Dutch. Yeah. All right. So, um, anyway, I think like, you know, once you start, uh, you, the more you use something, the more you like it. And the more you like it, the more you find uses for it. So, you right, know, that's exactly what I figured. Exactly. Yeah. 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 I mean, I mean, who of us are really born loving most of the things that we end up loving? You know, very few of the things. You know, we're not born loving coffee, I don't think. We're not born loving a lot of the things uh, that we that we end up liking. So, yeah, use – find a couple of uses that you like. You know, put a peg on those and then branch out from there and you'll find more and more that you like. The real trick awesome. once you like something is finding something yeah. that a non-lover will like. That's the real trick. Gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That's that's great. So thanks so uh, so much for all the tips. Uh, love your work. Love the show. Uh, both you and Nastasha. Um, I've got your uh, liquid intelligence book because I'm kind of getting into cocktails at the moment. It's sort of new to me. I'm dipping my toe in. Uh, but yeah, thanks for all the great work. And uh, I'll call in if I have uh, any more questions or uh, uh, yeah, just to let you know how everything goes. Great nice. Tip. Thank you. All right, Dave, should, right, we, d- should we go to a commercial or we have another caller? You, you read my mind. Yeah, let's take a commercial and then we got a caller on the line waiting. All right, cool. Coming right back with Cooking Issues. This episode. 
episode is brought to you by Joule, the immersion circulator for sous vide by Chef Steps. If you're listening to this show, you're probably a pretty good cook. Maybe you already know that sous vide is the best way to get a kick-ass, juicy steak. And with Joule, a new sous vide tool from Chef Steps, you can do so much more. Smoky tender ribs, homemade yogurt, creme brulee, bright, crunchy pickles, vibrant purees, even smooth, creamy ice cream, all perfectly cooked every time. Joule is sleek and small enough to fit in your kitchen drawer, and it's operated by an elegant smartphone app that's been designed to remove the guesswork, get you cooking faster, and give you the information and inspiration you want when you want it. Browse Chef Steps' amazing recipes and helpful guides. Choose your perfect doneness for any meat and get notified when your food is ready. You know you'll get great results, so you can focus on sides and sauces or just pour yourself a cocktail and chill until you're ready for a delicious dinner. For more information and to order yours now, visit chefsteps.com slash J-O-U-L-E. Bob's Red Mill has been milling whole grains since 1978. One of the nice things about Bob's Red Mill is it's the only that I know of national supplier that's easily available for lots of interesting, hard-to-get grains and other seed products. So, you know, before Bob's Red Mill became widely available, you couldn't go get something like quinoa very easily, or you couldn't go get spelt easily in small quantities. But now you go to any one of the huge number of stores that carry Bob's Red Mill, and you can get smaller amounts of these really interesting, fun things to play with. Learn more at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. And we are back. That man will not shut up. That man will not shut up. So many commercials. What is with that guy? Also, that commercial, not very good. Which one? Spelt. You you were tripping all all over yourself. Listen, while we're, uh, well, all over myself, I like that. Like, interrupting myself. (laughs) Uh, We're going to take a caller, but in the meantime, I brought back this uh, hot, sour candy called um, uh, Winnie's Acid Ups from Mexico. Nastasia, eat another one while while we're talking. You don't like it? Mm Why not? I don't know. There's a weird flavor. Not the hot or the it's spicy t- or the it's sour. It's tamarind. It's tamarind, mm, tamarind over top of... It's tamarind and chili powder. Do you not like that Lucas powder? I like the chili powder. I like... Yeah, I like that. It's the tamarind, I think. You don't like tamarind? Yet another thing. All right, call... You have a caller? Caller. Caller, you're on the air. Uh, hello? Hi. Hi there. This is uh, Paul Rafelson from Underbelly in Brooklyn, and... Um, I have an idea in response to a question that you fielded in a previous podcast. I also have a totally unrelated question. Nice. So, uh, what, what would you rather have first? Your choice. Uh, okay. So my idea, you were, you were asking about home-friendly ways of browning proteins after low-temperature cooking. Um, and I just wanted to mention something that I've been doing. I don't think this is a new idea, but I don't hear about a lot of people doing it. Um, I just mix together a secret sauce of uh, dextrose and baking soda and just apply that to the protein before browning it. Um, and it enhances the Maillard reactions and uh, it can give you a really nice crust in, I think, less than half the time that it normally takes. You can also use a slightly less hot pan to do it in. Um, I don't know if that's something that you've experimented with. So, uh, or not. so you know, um, the baking soda as a basic, th- literally basic thing, um, yes. it you know speeds um, Maillard reactions. So, um, and I, th- I think maybe even some non some non uh, Maillard browning reactions. So, the uh, obviously like adding a reducing sugar. Uh, is going to speed Maillard, and also it will literally caramelize, which speeds browning. And you're going to have uh, the more basic uh, environment, so that's going to en- enhance uh, browning. So this is the – a lot of people have done this with um, – or tested this. In fact, there's some – I think they were from the Netherlands actually, going back to the last caller, that used to do this on browned meats for things like ragouts or like bolognese or so- something like this. Um, to enhance the browning of the meats, especially in situations where it's hard to get good browning because of excess moisture, like when you're doing ground meat in the bottom of a pot. Um, There's also, you know, obviously the, um, you know, Chef Steps and the Modernist Cuisine crew are very pro uh, a little bit of baking soda in – 
in veg in a pressure cooker to enhance the kind of uh, brown kind of cooked flavors that you get in those environments as well. So it's known there. I've done some experimenting with um, meats that way years and years ago. But my problem with it has always been it's like very hard to get it such that you can't tell that there's been baking soda on the outside. And you also have to put or at least we always did maybe we don't have to you tell me put some acid on it afterwards to neutralize it and you can get some weird kind of foamy effects but maybe we were just overdoing it on the baking soda maybe by cutting it with a little bit of sugar you also have to also worry if you have sugar on it same way that if you're like you know cooking with um any sugary glaze or, or soy basing that, you, like you said, you have to go with a lower temperature because you, you, it's easy to l- scorch it such that it, it, it tastes burnt. So you just have to be careful. The same way you would if you had like a, a marinade, like a teriyaki marinade or something. You have to be careful that you don't scorch it in a pan because it's easy to do. But have you noticed? Uh, have you noticed any sort of like basic or, or baking soda y kind of flavor, or do you neutralize it with an acid afterwards? Uh, I haven't had to neutralize it. Um, what I have done with some trial and error is really reduce the amount of baking soda that's in the mix. So um, what I've done for a while is about a one-to-five ratio of baking soda to um, dextrose. And um, then really the only issue is if you sprinkle it on dry, it's easy to overdo it a little bit. Um, and also it doesn't really have much shelf life because it, it – uh, the the glucose pulls moisture out of the air and, and gets clumpy, and then it starts to kind of uh, myardize itself. Um, but uh, what I've just started doing, and uh, which which is kind of promising, is I make that same mix, and I disperse it in oil. Um, so it's kind of dispersed in some neutral uh, refined oil, like safflower oil or something. It doesn't dissolve, but it stays separate, and it stays uh, apart from oxygen and moisture in the air, and you just brush it on real lightly with a pastry brush. And so far, the couple of times I've done that, it's worked really well. Um, so you just resuspend I, right before, just like re-slurry it right before you're going to use it? Yeah, yeah. Like it stays um, it stays a really nice consistency in the oil um, and just like coats the brush nicely. And you just put a little slather on after you've dropped the meat and bam. Um, you know, I'll try it. Are you, are you say, doing five to one? Bam. Um, uh, yeah, you, you did say bam. That happened. Hit. Yeah, you, you did. That <laughs> happened. Um, but yeah, it, it's. Uh, I'm still experimenting with the oil, but I think it's. I think it's promising. But um, I, th- I think it's definitely something to experiment with. You know, maybe you can improve upon the methods. But right now, I'm pretty pleased with it. Yeah, um, I'll, g- I'll give it a try. I'll tell you something else on this same thing that I've been experimenting with. Uh, you know, just out of curiosity. Um, so, like a lot of um, back in the day. The you know the issue with low temperature cooking right is that you want to put a, a a crust or or a sear or whatever you want to call it depending on what you're looking for on the outside of the protein relatively quickly so you don't undo all the good work that you've done with the low temperature cooking right I mean that's the whole goal so um, you know one of the issues with crust formation or searing in general is the fact that. Uh, once you've cooked something, it no longer has good contact with the pan. So therefore, when you're pan searing, you tend to put oil on, or in your case, you can brush oil on, and that'll help make up for some of the fact that the meat is no longer raw when you're searing it, right? And so this is all good practice. But it's also always been the main practice of, of everyone, and I recommended it and always have, that you get the pan screaming hot right? Screaming hot. And the idea being that the hotter the pan is, the kind of better off you're going to do. And in experiments that I've done, uh, in general, when I was using, but the thing is, is I did my experiments with extremely powerful equipment, right? Extremely powerful, thick pieces of cast iron, extremely powerful. Uh, Mm -hmm. I used a, uh, a, a French gas powered crepe maker. Those things have some serious, serious, like it's seriously strong. So, I don't know whether my numbers actually correlate as well as I would want to to a normal kind of a, a home situation. My, my feeling is is that remember that the surface of the meat, it only needs to get above the kind of browning temperatures. So when you think mentally, right, what's the fastest way to, to, to cook, to sear off this piece of meat? Well, it's, it's either charring the hell out of it in a, uh, in a super intense grill situation, which is one kind of flavor, or two – Pan, you know, deep, fundamentally deep frying it. And I know people don't want to deep fry, but 
you can get such a good crust so quickly deep frying, even though the oil is never really going above 360 degrees Fahrenheit. And so that got me to think maybe you can actually get a good result in a pan um, by shallow frying, pan frying in a small amount of oil without making all of the fire, without making all of the smoke. And so last week I actually did a test in my house where I seared a piece of meat in a pan – uh, and I didn't turn my vents on. You know, I have good vents. I didn't turn my vents on to see whether or not my wife could, could would complain and all this other stuff. So what I did was is rather than heat the pan up to screaming, which is what, what I normally do, I slowly – I put oil in the pan cold, uh, slowly heated the pan up to deep fryer temperature like 360, right, which is, a, you know, like, you know, not – maybe the whole pan had maybe half cup or, or something of oil in it. And then once it was at 360, and I had it kind of like settled. I let it kind of heat up the entire pan, come up to that. Then I stuck my uh, meat in. Uh, and then at that point, I cranked it up full so that I would input the amount of energy into the pan that was required to try to get the oil back to its high temperature and to try to uh, brown the meat, right? Then when I pulled it off to flip between sides, I let, I let it come back up to temperature. Well, I used an IR back up to 360, flipped the meat, did it again, um, and then did it that way. So you weren't in this screaming hot pan. Your oil never really gets that hot because it doesn't really help you to have the oil that hot. It just gets dangerous and makes a lot of smoke. And I was able to actually sear a piece of meat quite well, I think, in a kitchen environment without a vent. And I could smell the oil a little bit. I'm not going to lie. But, um, you know, I did it without a commercial deep fryer, without a vent, uh, and I was able to get decent results. But I'll definitely want to check also. I'll, I'll, I'll re-look at this kind of uh, – especially with the oil and the, and the uh, glucose is kind of um, – uh, baking soda idea. What was your second question? Uh, well, well uh, follow up on that. Do you, do you have a lot of BTOs on your uh, home stove? I like, do. I, mean, I have a I, buttload of. I have. I have a pretty uh, wussy stove. Yeah. And, uh, so the reason I get things up screaming hot is I just I need to store up that energy because it takes my little burners a long time to get it into there. You right. Know, so I, I like to try your method, but yeah. I'm a little worried that it would just take a really long time for it to recover that heat. I have a really crappy stove that I have access to, like really super garbage stove that I have access to that I want to try, but I won't be at that stove for another like week and a half. So I'm definitely going to try it on a crappier stove. Um, what, I, what I'm really interested in doing, and I've been trying to figure out kind of the best way to do it, is... Um, I want to kind of measure – I want to come up with some kind of standard measures that everyone can do for their own equipment and their own stove, right? So pretty much a ribeye is the size of a ribeye, you know, more or less in terms of its face uh, face area. Uh, you know, a porterhouse is roughly porterhouse size. I mean it changes a little bit, but, you know, we can kind of guess or, or you know, a fillet we can kind of guess. So what I want to do is I want to try to figure out some metric, some test you can run that and, – and I'm trying to think like do I want to have someone boil water? And you don't have to do it if you don't want to, but just to kind of figure out not only how many BTUs or because you might not have gas, right? You might have electric. Not only ha- like how much heat is being used, but how much heat does your oven-pan combination really put onto a piece of meat because that's the important point, right? Yeah. That's what really matters. And so uh, I'm trying to – because uh, when you do a pot, when you're testing – when you're testing like burners, the typical test you would do is just put a pot on and uh, you know see how fast it can boil water. Put a, a glass lid on it and see how fast it can boil water on one versus the other. And you do use the exact same pot, the exact same amount of water at the same temperature, the same lid, and you can get a very good idea of uh, kind of how long it takes. So that's one measure, right? But then you can also uh, – test your evaporation rate. You could take the lid off and see over five minutes at full bore how much is evaporated off, and it's very easy to do the math to figure out, okay, I boiled off you know, X number of grams of, um, of water. Once it came to a boil, the uh, heat of fusion uh, – or sorry, the heat of vaporization of, of water is Y, and this is how much energy was being dumped into the pan. The problem with that is, is that I'm, you have to, I think, run it with the pan that you're going to use. Right. And so I'm trying to figure out what. And once I have it, I'll, you know, I'll I'll 
say what I do, but I'm trying to figure out. Then you'll know exactly how effective your stove, uh, your stovetop can be at these kind of um, at these tricks. But I want to. There's some minimum amount of energy you need to input into the oil to get it up to the temperatures to flash off enough liquid to get a good crust on a piece of meat, right? I mean, I just haven't figured out those numbers yet, but this is just kind of what I'm experimenting with. Oh, that's great. Dave, we got to wrap it up. Oh man, you have? Did you have a? Did you have another quick question? You said you had two questions. Yeah, yeah, oh. quick, yeah. Uh, quick question. Um, I'm, Jesus. I blog about uh, advanced ice cream techniques, and a lot of what we talk about is using different sugars. And um, um, a lot of the recipes that I'm talking about and techniques use uh, invert sugar or uh, trimaline. Right. And a question that's been in the back of my head is, um, you know, when you're using trimaline in a solution like this. Is there a functional difference between starting with the syrup or just using a mix of powdered glucose and fructose? Like once it goes into once it goes into solution. Yeah, I mean the trimaline's at a very it's very high, uh, very low liquids, right? Compared to so, but, but once it's in solutions, I shouldn't think that there's a difference. Yeah, it just seems uh, it just seems like a really simple thing, and I could not get anyone to uh, could not find any information anywhere about that. It seems. Like, yeah, it shouldn't be any different, but uh, I don't think it nothing is. talks about that. And, it, and it's like it's like easier to work with powders than to work with the goop, you know. So, uh, yeah, but the goop um, is easy in large batches, right? When you're doing scaled out stuff in large batches, especially if it's written for that, they take the water weight into account. And so, like, when you're doing lots and lots of stuff and you don't want to have to make those solutions up, like having those, like, giant gallon buckets of trimaline around or whatever they come in, you know, there may even be more than that. Um, you know what I mean? They – it can't – like, I liked having them around when I was at the French culinary. You know what I mean? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I talked to I talked to a pastry chef about this, and he was like, well, maybe, but the question is interesting to me because I use trimaline for everything, and I don't use fructose for anything, so right. um, he didn't care. Right. Just from the, the standpoint of making smaller, moderate-sized batches of ice cream, it's easier to measure, you know, measuring out these powders anyhow. Yeah, yet another, um, yet another it's situation. It's easier to weigh out one more powder than to, like, try to get uh, this, this gunk off the spoon. Um, and the syndicate will eventually spoil in your fridge anyhow. Right. Yet, yet um, another scenario where, like, cooking at home and cooking, like, in a restaurant isn't always the same problem. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, thanks for calling in. Next week, I'm going to get Carlos to your question on uh, sous vide cooking and serious eats and Kenji versus chef steps. I find it very interesting. We'll talk about that next week. We'll get to Ron's um, uh, curing chamber questions and uh, more on mocktails uh, from uh, AK and just like a host of other uh, other interesting questions. We got some ice questions in, but we'll get to them next time because we had callers. And remember, callers always take preference. Cooking issues. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Thank you.